0: In the 1940s, a professional baseball player burst onto the scene for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was a rookie of the year. He led the league in multiple offensive categories, including best hitter. He excelled in every aspect of the game. He had blazing speed. He could hit both sides of the plate with power. He got key hits and uh, big hits in key situations. He had a cannon for an arm, and by year's end, many in the baseball world, coaches, writers, general managers, thought he was the best player in the National League. But odds are, you have never heard of him. I want to tell the story why. His name, his nickname, was Pistol Pete Reiser, and he would never have a year like that first year. He was competitive. He was reckless, he was stubborn, and the men that he worked for were the same way. His home field was Ebbets Field, and the outfield that he patrolled was fenced in by a concrete wall. Now in those days, there was no uh, warning, uh, warning track that warned an outfielder that he was getting close to the wall. Uh, there were no thick padding on the walls. Where he played, it was just pure, thick Concrete. Seven times in seven years, Pistol Pete hit the wall at full speed, face first, head on at Ebbets Field or, or fields like it. Five of the seven times, he was carried off unconscious. Bloodied face, contorted face, sometimes spending several weeks in the hospital, sometimes not waking up for several days. But still, he labored on. There was no concussion protocol back then. He played through dizzy spells, double vision, terrible headaches. There were flashes of greatness, but he never returned to the glory of that first year. Now, his manager and general manager were complicit. They were just as stubborn and short sighted, refusing doctors' orders, refusing to make him sit, refusing to move him back into the infield which was his natural position, they rushed him back into center field every time. Now, there's a lesson here. And it's how a competitive spirit can undo us. And when it's reckless and when it's not led well. Now, the same competition that we love, the same competition that kept you up late last night watching the Buckeyes can be the same competition if fueled by the wrong stuff, if not harnessed, can have disastrous consequences, not just in our physical world, but especially in our relational world. Now, I love competition. I love it. I hate losing at anything. doesn't matter what it is. I'm so terrible. Even when I'm driving, I don't like being passed. But my competitive spirit can be fueled by the wrong stuff. Egotism. Being me-centered. These days in my more mature years, that competitive spirit shows up when I compare myself to others. I am capable of comparing myself to others in lots of areas. Family. Accomplishment possessions. And most times I find myself on the losing end of that measuring stick. And it yields a discouragement or a bitterness that is totally unnecessary. And of course, when you're in this spirit, you sometimes find yourself on the top end of the measuring stick, and that produces a subtle pride of self-exaltation. We're going to see this negative spirit of competition unraveling the people and the church in Corinth. They adopted the me first, success-oriented ethos of the world around them. And it threatened to end the witness of God in their city. It can do the same with us as well. So let's pray and ask God to help us through this journey we're going to start today in 1 Corinthians. Father, we come in here this morning from all kinds of places with all kinds of different needs. We all need to hear different things this morning. I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, which makes this empty air in the room filled with the power of Him. And I ask you that you would guide us Reveal Yourself to us in a way that would change us forever. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. If you'll indulge with me for a moment, this message has two introductions. Let me introduce here not just some of the relational themes, but also the city about which we're studying. It's important that we see the connection here. 1 Corinthians is a book in the New Testament. It's dated about 54 or 55 A.D. It was written by the Apostle Paul who founded this church. It's a shot of modern Corinth here, by the way, in Greece. Uh, Paul had founded the church in A.D. 50, about five years early. It was a Greek city, though culturally uh, more Roman. It's a lot like modern-day America. had an advantageous trade position. It was a prosperous city. It was a transitional city. Corinthians did not have many family or social ties. It was a city where you could make something of yourself. You had the opportunity to be upwardly mobile. The end game was achieving a position of prestige through wealth or through wisdom. Many Corinthians were free from the daily toil of survival. And it was stylish to seek out wisdom. As in all over the Greek world, rhetoric was prized. Rhetoric is a form of speech. With little print media and no visual media, Corinthians enjoyed speeches in their public marketplaces. Rhetoric valued the art of persuasion. Audiences in Corinth, they were taken aback by impressive, by sophisticated speakers, even if the content lacked sincerity or even if it lacked a little truth for that matter. Fact checkers fact checkers were completely absent back then. The best speakers developed very large public followings. How about religious life in Corinth? What was that like? Well, religious life was like a veritable smorgasbord. Corinthians could choose from a cafeteria line of gods. It was MCL all over. Most folks had room for all the gods and goddesses. In their religious palate. Hey, there's safety in numbers. The more gods on one side, the better. As for the Corinthian church itself, their faith appears to have very little impact on them. There were moments of spiritual insight and thrill, but their faith was compartmentalized into these very mystical experiences that had very little effect on their actual faith. As it was, they were very cozy with their community and faced no pressure from the outside world. Why should they? The outworking of their faith provided their neighbors little reason to believe that Jesus was not simply another God who could be casually chosen or dismissed. Now, as to the highly sexualized culture of Corinth. We've talked before. It mirrors our own obsessions. And as to other parallels, they will become evident as we walk through these 16 chapters. But their problem, their problem in this church, and to quote one commentator, David Garland, was this. It was not that the church was in Corinth, but too much of Corinth was in the church. Jesus Himself put it this way. He said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The Corinthians were a church at risk. They were losing their saltiness. What does salt do? It preserves. Number one, and it creates a thirst. They were doing neither. They were not preserving the integrity of the message, nor living the kind of life that would create a spiritual thirst in their neighbors. How about the American church today? It's also at risk. We are losing our saltiness. And the integrity of our message is being pressed in from every side. So, friends, there is no better time than today than to dive headfirst into this very relevant book. I feel like I should say pray again, but let's, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you want to look at our Bibles, it's page 952. And I'm going to pick up the text here at verse 18 in the first chapter. The Apostle Paul writes this For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and Christ the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish, to shame in the world, to shame the wise. But the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This passage reveals a collision course between the world, not the created world, not the people in the world, but its systems and its values. This is a collision course between the world and between the cross. Now here's the three questions that I'd like to answer to unpack this passage, and this will be an outline for you. First question is this. Why was the cross so offensive? Secondly, why does the cross remain offensive today? And thirdly, what difference does it make? How should we live in the light of the cross, okay? First question, why was the cross so offensive? It's hard for us in 2015 to understand this. And here's why. Think about it. As Americans, you may not even be a Christian, but the imagery of the cross is all around you, and it's bathing in very positive light. Crosses dot military cemeteries like Arlington are majestic. We wear crosses around our necks. Crosses are cut into beautiful stained glass windows we post them on highways to mark where our loved ones have died. Many Americans, at least older Americans, have very fond memories of singing the old rugged cross. But all of this was in the future when Jesus died. There was no overly romantic view of the cross in the ancient Roman world. Crucifixion was an exceptionally cruel and shameful death. It was the fate of hardened criminals, rebellious slaves, and rebels against the state. And think about it. The life of Christ was hardly compelling. He was rejected by those he came to save, deserted by his closest friends, rounded up by legitimate authorities, and in the end was powerless to save himself. Paul does not skip over the embarrassing details of the crucifixion as if it were some end note to the main part of the story, which would be the resurrection. No, the gospel story is the crucifixion and the resurrection. He says that he preaches Christ crucified. And that's relevant. It's relevant because the cross was nauseating to the ancient world. It flew in the face of of a culture bent on individualism and getting ahead at all costs. The Greek-Roman world was a shame and honor culture where bringing honor to oneself and family was the highest good. Hanging naked on a cross was the ultimate assignment of shame. Roman Emperor Cicero said the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Another commentator put it this way, to proclaim a crucified Jew from some backwater of the empire as a divine being sent on earth as God's Son, Lord of all, coming to judge the earth? that must have been thought by any educated man to be utter madness. Christianity was surrounded by defeat. And to preach Christ crucified, to identify with that message, was to make oneself vulnerable to the same stigma of defeat and contempt. What does it mean there in verse 22? When it says that the Jews demanded signs. Well, for the majority of Jews in this era, God had become a formality, a lifeless religion, not a personal encounter. They were looking for a mighty sign of victory over their enemies, a miracle like the days of the Exodus, a show of political prowess. And so they missed the more subtle yet deeply profound signs like the tearing of the veil in the Holy of Holies. How about the Greeks? Why did they miss? Why were they offended at the cross? What does it mean for them to seek wisdom? It meant that they believed that through the power of the mind, through the power of reason, without help from God, they could achieve a God-like status. They could discover on their own the purpose and meaning of life. Wisdom showed them the pathway towards respectability. Through their superior intellect, they could suppress the animal or lower desires that they knew were inside of them. Here comes the cross and its message about a dying Savior, dying for their sins. And what this did is that it took the sins of slaves and prostitutes, and it put them in the same company as the reputable and the wise. It took the reputable and self-described wise, exalted person down several notches and put them on the same level as the dirty and the foul. And to a Greek, this was an absolutely repulsive idea. That's why the cross was so offensive in the ancient world. Why does it remain offensive today, even this second question, even in light of the positive imagery? Look at verse 25. This will help us understand. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. And exhibit one, that God's wisdom is greater than the world, exhibit one is the Corinthians themselves which they seem to have forgotten their less than glorious origin before they came to Christ. They didn't measure up. And to put it in today's vernacular, Paul said, not many of you fit into the mold of the young, hip, and successful. Paul is suggesting here in this passage that human wisdom without God, it does have a partial knowledge. Because we're created in God's image. But that knowledge without Christ is vulnerable. What's it vulnerable to? It's vulnerable to our own self-deceit. Our own capacity to deceive ourselves, to take that partial knowledge and to twist it into love of ourselves and love of our own accomplishments. Defining ourselves not as sons and daughters of God, but defining ourselves by being more successful, more thin, more wise, more smart, more moral than the next guy. This worldly wisdom cannot even recognize God's wisdom. Even if God's wisdom is perched right in front of it, waving a big flag. Why? Because this wisdom is in love with itself And it is blinded by its own sense of self-importance. I couldn't say it better than this, comparing the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of the cross. T.B. Savage said this, The wisdom of the world runs counter to the cross because it breeds a competitive and self-serving outlook. It glamorizes self-promotion and elitism, comfort and ease, not suffering, Personal honor and esteem, not humiliation. Such wisdom is tantamount to exalting oneself in the face of God, and it lies behind the breakdown of community. The wisdom of this world seeks its own advantage no matter how much it hurts others. The wisdom of the cross serves others with no regards for personal cost. That's the difference. Why does the cross still offend today? Because it continues to crush the wisdom of the world. It continues to expose it as insufficient to make us truly human. As insufficient to set us free from ourselves. As insufficient to lead us to truly satisfying relationships. The cross today offends those who believe that through the power of superior intellect they can master the mysteries of the universe. It continues to offend those that believe that through the power of a superior moral or family life they can establish a right standing before God. It offends those who believe that through the power of their wealth and reputation they have proven their goodness and worth somebody that God would be glad to have on their team. The cross tells us that it is not through the wisdom of the world, but through the wisdom of God that we truly discover what it means to be human. Only through the wisdom of God do we find the power to be set free from addictions, obsessions, and self-destructive Desires. Only through the wisdom of God can we find genuine satisfaction in community. And this is what Paul says essentially in verse 30. He says, And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom. And that's the main topic, but Paul can't stop there. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Let me spend a moment, just a brief moment on each of these four. Christ, number one to us, is wisdom from God. Meaning that in Him we find our true essence and purpose. He unlocks the secrets and the mysteries of why we're here. He is our righteousness, meaning that He is the source of being rightly related to Himself and other human beings. He is our sanctification, which means we are set apart called out for a special, unique purpose. His power makes change possible, and Jesus is making us perfect. You know, many of us come to God only wanting Him to take away a few plain, evident sins, ones that are annoying to us, that keep us from not getting along in the world, and they're annoying to others also. But once those sins are gone... And having gained back a sense of self-respectability, we begin to coast. God's done enough for us. We don't want any more. But as C.S. Lewis draws an analogy, coming to God is like going to the dentist. You don't want to go. But at some point, the toothache is so bad, you must. And and, and once that happens, once you've done that little work on your toothache, ache. You don't want to return. But what happens? The dentist has seen the inside of your mouth. And he or she says that there's a lot more work to be done. God is the same way with you. Once you let him in, once you begin with him, he will not let you go. His goal is to make you perfect, which is precisely what he will do in the life to come. And what He asks you to give up on that journey will be far more painful than those first few annoying sins that drew you to Him in the first place. He is our sanctification, Christ. And Christ is our redemption. Through Jesus, God does not leave us alone to die in our own sins. He does not leave us alone with a debt towards Him that we Can never repay. Our lives were lost to God when we walked away from Him. He purchases our lives back by exchanging His life, His own life, for ours. So, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption is all through Christ. Now, let me ask this final question What difference does it make? How then should we live? in the light of the pathway of the cross, the wisdom of God. I want to just briefly talk about interpersonal relationships and then talk about corporate relationships in the church. Look back at verse 10 in the first chapter. And let me read these verses. This is the first area that Paul corrects in this church. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, interesting, that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. When too much of the world gets in side of us, when we judge by human standards or the wisdom of the world, it inevitably divides and creates factions and creates dissension. It separates friends, siblings, couples, parents from children and children from parents, and it divides and separates churches as well. And that's what's happening here. They are way over-identifying with people that they can see in flesh and blood rather than following Christ, which requires faith. So, making this practical for today, let me ask you. Are you caught today in some kind of division? Are you separated from someone that you love? Are you in some kind of conflict this morning? Have you considered your first, have you considered your part in it? Is there wisdom from the world that you are operating by? Is there a standard of success? Is there an expectation you have placed on someone that bubbles up not from the wisdom of the cross, but from a worldly definition of success? Maybe that expectation comes from a competitive desire, or perhaps it's more subtle than that. Maybe you have a misplaced expectation that goes back to your, uh, your growing up years, the way you grew up, and maybe you've never taken your traditions and your way of life and submitted them to the light of Scripture. Maybe you're operating more in the ways of, uh, of the world and the patterns of the world than you realize. You may place all the blame on the other party, but you've never looked inside. That's the first place to start. Now, having done that, on the other side of the conflict, there may be a party that is indeed clearly abusive, clearly manipulative. They embrace without shame the world's values and use the world's means to oppress you. What is the cross? What does the wisdom of God say here? Well, the cross sheds light on this side of the conflict as well. First, it urges us to forgive unconditionally, as Christ forgave unconditionally. But in the same light, because Christ died for real evil, the wisdom of God refuses to deny the existence of evil. And because God demanded a payment for real evil in Christ's death, we see there is no compromise with evil. It must be confronted. You see, the world in its wisdom does not know how to forgive while confronting evil. But what do we learn from the wisdom of God? In the wisdom of God, we take evil seriously. We confront it. We fight against it. We may even have to separate from the evil person. We may not be able to entrust ourselves to them without boundary. But we still work to forgive. We still have no grounds for hatred. For we too are sinners. We too are saved by grace. And we are preserved from evil only by His grace. Some of you this past week may have watched the documentary on Coach McCartney. It's a name that's not been uh, relevant for quite some time, but Coach McCartney burst onto the scene in the mid-80s and led the Colorado Buffaloes to their first and only national championship. I think they still have a team, but, but uh, Coach McCartney was a fantastic coach and was actually a tremendous innovator uh, in race relations uh, on the campus there and uh, on his football team. Then he eventually resigned that and he took a role in what was called Promise Keepers, which was a movement amongst men. It culminated in the Million Man March at Washington, D.C. And uh, this was a beautiful documentary telling his story. At one very pivotal moment, I had forgotten this part of the story, Coach Mack described the time in his life when through all the work that he was working in, reconciliation work with, uh, between gender, between uh, husband and wife, between the races, he became convinced that he needed to communicate to his wife of some 20 plus, 30 years that in the first few years of their marriage, he had had an affair. And so he told his wife that very thing. In his own words, he said she retreated to our bedroom for a year and did not come out. He did not know where the relationship was going. In her mind, it was as if the entire, their entire life together was just one covered by one, one profound lie. But in the end, following the pattern and the wisdom of the cross, she was able to confront e- evil, to set boundaries, to not just yield trust easily, but in the end, she was able to walk into a pattern of forgiveness so that their marriage could be renewed and they could spend their final years together until she died at the age of 73. This speaks to our interpersonal relationships. But before we, before we close, let me just comment very briefly about the church itself. Because the context here is directly the church in Corinth. The church in America, as you know if you have been alive, the church has this long history of sad separations and sad divisions. Many times, it's not theological at its base. It may appear to be a theological, but it's often the underlying cause is that parties are buying in to the wisdom of the world and not following the pattern of the cross. Scholars believe here that the issues were not largely theological. These uh, individual leaders could have been rival home church leaders, those who hosted and led small churches that met in their homes. If so, they were getting into turf wars. If so, they were following the pattern of leadership and uh, competitiveness and individualism that marked the world and the era that surrounded them, the ethos that surrounded them. So Paul urges them to agree. But how? How do they agree? Again, look at what he says. This is interesting. He says, first, have the same mind. He's not urging them to agree on every minute theological detail. But first, have the same mind. This means be able to judge rightly, able to distinguish right from wrong. And then secondly, have the same judgment. That means to have the same goals and the same opinion about the truth. So, what would unite them? What unites us? Two things. One is the same goal. The same goal with respect to the purpose of the church. And what is the purpose of the church? It is defined by the final words of the Lord Jesus to go and make disciples of all the nations. And secondly, have the same opinion about the truth. What does that mean? It means to take the Bible seriously, to honor it, to love it, to take it seriously as God's Word, and to respect it as the final rule of our practice and of our faith, loving it. So, a common purpose and a common love for God's Word. This is how they, this is how we, can stay on the same page. If our purpose is clear, if the Word of God lives in our hearts, then we will have the prism through which to see conflicts. And we will not only be able to solve many conflicts, but we will also quickly see and quickly recognize that there are many conflicts that do not need to divide us. They are issues of personal preference or desire. They are issues that Christians with the same goals and the same love for God can disagree on without hindering genuine community. Let me give you a couple examples. This is a simple one. We can have the same passionate desire for holiness But then we discover that we have different convictions on what kind of entertainment or what sort of choices violate that holiness. Those are issues that do not need to divide us. Another example, we may have the same passion for justice in the world, but we soon discover that we have different political convictions When it comes to things like taxes, our government regulation, our military spending, our immigration, our health care, these things do not need to divide us. Here's a third example. Parents share the same passion for their children. They share a longing for them to know Christ But we find we have many different convictions on how to educate and how to raise them. This does not need to divide us. Fourthly, we all agree with the idea that every person is a minister. But we soon discover there are many different issues that motivate us. Some are motivated by poverty. Some are motivated by the condition of the homeless or hurting children or or the uh, are the addicted, still others by abortion or end of the life end of life issues. The fact that we have differing things that motivate us with different levels of emphasis in our life does not need to divide us. If we allow the wisdom of the world and competitiveness fueled by individualism if we manifest a me-first attitude, if we insist on my way, if our speech is demanding or demeaning, then we are not walking in the way of Christ. We are not walking in the wisdom of God. These differences can create division in churches. And my goodness, I have seen in those four examples, churches divide over those issues. I'm so grateful, so thankful that we've not experienced that here. But we must be continually reminded again of what are our goals, what was Jesus' words, what was his commission, what's the end goal we all agree on, and then secondly, sharing the same view and opinions with respect to the role that the Scriptures play in our lives. If we do that, we'll find that we're able to judge rightly. We're able to distinguish right and wrong. We're able to divide the most important issues from the secondary ones. We will find a common purpose and value, a system that unites us. Gathering on Sunday, it's one reason why gathering on Sunday mornings is so important. Gathering in our small groups is so important. Yes, many of those things you already know, but they remind us of these purposes and these values that unite us. It's one reason why we do our membership class, which we would encourage you to participate in. That class helps us move forward in the same vision and the same page, united together, And hopefully, avoiding the kind of divisions that have hurt so many other churches. What is the big idea of this passage? I think it's this. When we reject the world's wisdom and adopt God's, we will experience a oneness in our friendships, in our marriages, in our families, and in our church that tells the world, tells the world with a big neon sign, with big banners that the invisible God is a living, present reality. And isn't that what we want? That's what we want. Let me close on this quote by Eugene Peterson. Peterson said, There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life, apart from an immersion in and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. Let's pray. Father, indeed, thank you so much for these few moments we could spend together this morning with your words, your love letter to us, your will expressed through your words, being the central part of why we gather and what we give our heart and our affections and our love and our attention to. God, um, for those this morning that are experiencing conflict, bring your wisdom, and your guidance to them. Some, Father, some here find that they need to set maybe a boundary. Give them courage and strength to call evil evil. And strength to do that today. Lord, others have to look inside and realize they're part of the problem. Give them the grace and the insight and the spiritual discernment through your spirit to identify what belongs to them and to confess, and to open up, and to own that, to bring healing. Father, I thank you for the great oneness that has marked our church for so many years. And, oh, God, please, we don't want to lose it. It's only been by your grace. It's not because we're anything special. I pray that we continue to be united around your purpose. I pray we continue to be united around a love for your words. And that would never change. would go another 40 years showing this community what it's like when Christians love one another. Father, we pray for that power. In Christ's name, amen.